Welcome, everybody, to Slip Angle Show. This is my best Austin Cabot, and I am in Dallas, Texas. I am sitting in Dusold Designs with uh, owner, founder, Mike Dusold, two-time Optima champion. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Avery? Not too bad. It's, uh, it's I finished cold. with like regular work earlier this morning, and I had a little layover in Texas, so I, I thought I'd stop in. I saw you uh, in Vegas last week during SEMA, and uh, you just flew back in. Yeah, we just landed and got back to the shop, and here we are. So this is a, a huge space. Tell us a little bit about what you have and uh, what kind of work you do here. Uh, we have 13,000 square feet. Uh, typically around 18 employees, and we do a lot of work on custom cars and late model cars. And our whole thing is where art meets speed. So we have a lot of cars that do track racing, and we have some show cars and a lot of cars that do both. So we want to kind of have a good mix and be different than a lot of the other shops are. You know, there's shops that have performance strictly and then other shops that do show cars strictly and we wanted to be kind of somewhere in the middle and have really cool fun cars that you could do stuff with yeah so we were talking right before we started recording you've been doing this a long while will you tell us a little bit about how you got started yeah i, I grew up in a car family my dad used to have uh, show cars and drag cars and grew up helping him restore his Shelby Mustang. So I've been working on cars since I was a tiny kid. My dad used to set a bunch of old tools next to engines he had laying around. And when he'd be working on stuff, he'd just let me tear apart old engines. And I got kind of got my feet wet then, but I've been working on stuff ever since I can remember. And I've always enjoyed art and drawing. And I got into airbrushing probably when I was 11 years old okay so i've done that ever since and i'm kind of i guess a little bit different in that i like art and airbrushing and things like that but i also enjoy engineering and mechanics and and that side of things too so it's kind of fun for me to have formed our company into something that kind of mixes both of those things sure and get to explore them both so uh it's been my experience that people are either one or the other. It's very weird and rare to get someone who's both very creative and incredibly mechanically and engineering inclined. So, um, you know, when did you first start to understand that you really could do both? I guess I never really understood it. I just, it's just been normal to me. And when people say that they can do one or the other, it seems odd. <laughs> it's like, they're the same thing. They're not that different, you know, and sometimes people like to classify them as different things, but in my mind, they're really not because trying to come up with good mechanical solutions or engineering solutions to problems is no different than trying to come up with something that's visual that you would create in art and art. You have to follow a process to get the look you're going for sure. and mechanically you have the same thing. So to me, they're really not that different. <laughs> okay. And I guess I've never looked at it that way in my mind that they, they never have been. Okay. But I know some people, they feel like they are for sure. So uh, for listeners that aren't familiar, Mike also has kind of an iconic uh, old Camaro, right? And uh, it's... If you've seen it, like if you've seen it, you'd almost certainly recognize it because it's just about everywhere. 
Will you tell us um, how that car got started? Sure. It's kind of a long history, so I hope you got a minute. But the uh, my first car that I ever bought with my own money was a, as a kid. I worked at my dad's body shop, saved up my money. And because we were kind of a Ford family, I was looking to go buy a Mustang. And all the Mustangs were too expensive. And we were at a car show and I saw a 67 Camaro for sale that was like the exact amount of money that I'd saved up. <laughs> and it was really cool looking to me. You know, I was, I think I was either 15 or 16 at the time. And I bought the car cash. I think I paid $3,700. That's for, a lot of cash for a 16-year-old. Yeah. Well, and it was funny because I painted Harley Davidson's for all my dad's friends. I was painting like flame jobs and stuff like that in high school. And I was, I think back then in the 90s, I was charging like 500 bucks to paint a Harley and I was doing like one a week. No kidding. <laughs> and I was in high school. So I, I saved the money up pretty quick, actually. And uh, I bought that car and man, I worked on that car nonstop. And I had it until like 95 or six when I moved down to Texas. And I ended up really wanting to get into turbos. So I sold it and bought a, a Grand National. Which is awesome. Yeah, which is cool. And I had I ended up with like five of those. And that's kind of where I learned about EFI and turbos. I actually took my Grand National, ripped all the wiring out, and then wired it myself. Oh, that's rad. Which was super ambitious because <laughs> back in the day, like when I didn't know anything about it, I was just like, well, I could figure it out. <laughs> so I did. It took, it took a while because I had to basically learn how every sensor worked and how they were all wired and wire the whole thing and then it had a the old gen 6 cell dfi on it like way back in the day nice. and that's where i learned about tuning because i'm like i'm gonna figure it out myself so got all that put on it and the car really was a lot of fun um we drag raced that one and it, it was pretty fast it would it would run mid sixes at like a hundred and like 113 miles an hour in the eighth mile. Okay. Like, and you could drive it to the track and back, but the car was broken all the time. It was like the most unreliable car I've ever had <laughs> in my life. And my wife hated it. Like Pam hated that car so bad. I had to sell it. And because it was just like, if your wife absolutely hates your car, you get to a point where you just, it's not worth it. It is not worth the drama. So do you have any grand nationals left? No, I don't. I, uh, it was funny. I kind of life's full of regrets, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I still, I used to daily drive grand nationals for long, long, long time. And then they kind of got into that weird space of parts okay, where no parts are available for them anymore. Right. And like mass air sensors used to be a real big problem with grand nationals because the aftermarket ones, your car would never run right. Because well, they just were, weren't calibrated right. And nobody had a prom chip that worked well with the aftermarket mass air meters. And you couldn't get GM ones anymore. And you had to switch to like a standalone to run speed density. And it just got to be a big enough hassle. And then we were getting a ton of them that had bad uh, coil modules. Okay. And just not being able to get parts and having a daily that was broken all the time, I kind of ended up. Over it selling them all yeah and then i got an 05 mustang and did a turbo car there 
But then when I got into the Mustang thing, I started juicing them up too much, and they were constantly not passing inspection. Okay. And then so you live a, in an inspection state. We don't yeah, have that. Yeah, Texas is an inspection state. So my cars were giving me drama trying to pass inspection, and I'm like, you know what? I need my fast car to be in old school, and I really miss my 67 Camaro. Okay. So you can see kind of where the Camaro came from. It's my first car ever that I really regretted. That's the one that I regretted selling the most because I built that car myself as a kid. But it sucks because I couldn't buy that car back because the guy totaled it that I sold it to, which made that sting even worse. That sucks. <laughs> yeah, he wrapped it around a tree. But uh, so I bought a 67 Camaro and I was actually just going to kind of make it a cool, fun driver. And then I was at a Good Guys event and I saw the autocross at good guys and i was like man i want to do that so and before then you really hadn't done much any kind of racing well i done uh i've done drag racing and i raced dirt bikes for a really long time so i kind of been around sure different types of racing but i didn't do any asphalt racing with cars ever before that okay so we got the camaro ready did did uh some good guys and then it just escalated, and then I'm like, well, I know a lot about turbos and EFI from <laughs> my days of turbo Mustangs and Grand Nationals, so I'm like, man, I bet you we could build a really salty turbo LS for the Camaro and have a fun car, and we could make it pretty light, and so we had Detroit Speed suspension in it and a bunch of really good parts, and the car was really fast, but when we would go to Optima events and things like that, there was no way that that car was capable of competing with C5 and C6 Corvettes. Just too good. It They were just too good of a car, and they had just better dynamics. I mean, the motor's in a better spot. You know, they don't have so much nose weight. They got a lower CG. Sure. They're lighter. You know, a bunch of reasons why you just... First-gen Camaros aren't necessarily competitive with Corvettes. Sure. And... It was kind of bothering me that people started saying like pro touring's over and the uh, Corvettes are going to dominate Optima forever. Sure. And I just I guess it lit a fire and I said, no, they're not. I'm going to build a Camaro that can beat Corvettes at Optima. And that's kind of where the car came from and what it is today is that we wanted to build a Camaro that really looked like a 67 Camaro. You know, it wasn't a Frankenstein monster. And was able to go out on a road course or an autocross or a drag strip and beat a Corvette. And we did it. We've got a Camaro that goes out there and regularly beats Corvettes. So Yeah, you're um so you've you've been to our events before for Grid Life and I was talking with Adam last night and <clears throat> something that is really weird about your car I've only ever seen in one other car, and that is uh, I spend pretty much all of my time in the middle of pit lane uh, watching cars come down the front straight. And so if you see a lot of them, usually um, your eyes get used to tracking where you think a car is going to be. And mm. there's only been two cars that I've ever seen that are faster than where your eyes think that it should be. And <laughs> one is uh, Will O'Young's uh, Civic, which is, I think, eight or 900 horsepower. It's insanely fast. And the other is your car, right? So it's it's accelerating at a rate that is just faster than your eyes can can really see. It's it's a gnarly thing. It's an incredible machine. Thanks. Yeah, it's one of the theories that I always thought was cool was, I think it was Dan Gurney that said, you need enough horsepower that you can lay a black stripe from 
the exit of one corner to the braking zone of the next. And <laughs> it's funny because yesterday on the road course at Optima, I got to do a, a lap on track by myself. Okay. And uh, I came around for my cool down and there were black stripes from corner to corner. And uh, it's so much fun just how fast that thing accelerates. And then it's got that sort of sequential in it. So you never lift. So it's that's a turbo wild. car that's never not in boost. That's wild. Yeah. So tell me more about the current setup because you've changed things constantly, right? That's part oh, of Oh yeah. Work. We almost never do two events with the same setup because we're constantly trying to get the car better and better. And over the years, we've kind of got almost like this board of directors group that kind of consults on the car. Interesting. Yeah, it, it's great because like our suspension guy, I've been so just happy to be able to work with him, but he used to work on indie teams. Okay. And then he was an engineer on Australian supercars and now he works in Trans Am and he's just a super smart, sharp guy. And uh, he's been helping us a lot on suspension. And then we've got Al Carrion that helps us. He's from CMP. He helps us on engines and we've actually been developing the engine to be more reliable and also a lot of turbo motors are have a lot of lag and they're hard to drive you know sure. historically they're difficult to drive and and for a lot of people they don't like them um but we've done a lot of work on with different compression ratios cam profiles cylinder heads all kinds of different things and different turbo sizes to where we've got the car really super linear and it's really easy to drive. Like you just basically floor the car and grab gears. That's wild. In the, uh, the motor now, if I just gave you the rundown, it would sound like it's out of a drag car. Cause it's a, it's got a dart block and it's got a Comstar crank and it's got diamond pistons and Cali's rods and, it's got Brodix BR7 heads, and it's got a Sean's custom alloy billet intake on it, and it's got Crower valve train in it, and I mean, it's really salty stuff, but we wanted the thing to be very reliable on our, our low boost setting, which is low boost setting right now is, I think, in the 12, 13 pounds of boost, something like that, okay. and it makes nine to nine fifty at the wheels so silly and it's uh when we turn it up we've turned it up to a thousand fifty at ls fest this year and uh we ran a 1006 at 154 in the quarter on 200 treadwear bfg rivals that's wild yeah the guys in the in the booth that were announcing just about fell out of the booth they're like they'd never seen a car on street tires or that was running in the grand champion competition sure. get anywhere even close to 154 miles an hour speaking of we're sitting next to the grand champion vintage trophy for ls fest here yeah we got we're sitting next to actually quite a few different there's a bunch of trophies over there from i'm probably going to need a, a little bit more room because we got the hall at sema we i think we're bringing home like four or five more trophies this that's time, so wild. So. It's it's awesome to see the progression. It seems like even, you know, even a couple of years ago, you were running um, at Road Atlanta, and you were, I think, in the twenty eights to twenty nine range. Yeah, uh, but I expect that now it's many seconds faster than that. Even. Oh yeah, well, just and that was two years before last year's Optima, and it was faster every event. Basically, it gets faster, and last year's Optima event. 
I ran like a 145.3, I think, or 145.8 or something like that on the road course. I think it was a 145.8. And this year we ran a 142.9. So the Have car you, is getting faster. I know that you travel around for Optima quite a bit. Um, does Optima run a full course at Road America? Or have you yes, done a full course? I have lap? not run the Road America event. Um, okay. So I have not run the full course at Road America. I, I was there one time, and it was back before we carried a lot of spares. And I fried a fuel pump, and it was a one-day event. And I went out on the road course, and the car coughed and sputtered, and I limped it around, pulled it back in, and it was broke for the day. And it, it was heartbreaking. because it, it It's such a long haul to get up to Road America, and then to have my car broke on such a cool track and like my car i think would love that track because it really car. likes to accelerate <laughs> and there's a lot of room for acceleration so the the configuration that they would run um oh they run the kink the motorcycle oh, they kink. do run the the kink um the but, motorcycle oh, thing not yeah. the kink kink gotcha. i guess i misspoke it's the motorcycle chicane is what they call yeah. that part yeah i think sometimes people call it the bend also so we okay. ran, uh, we ran there this year, uh, full course, uh, including the the standard configuration with the kink, and uh, the track was actually really concerned about our drivers being able to handle it, and we had yeah. no incidents at the kink, which was super lucky. Yeah, that's um, cool. I know my my buddy Bob Boylo totaled a car in the in the kink. Yeah, uh, so we so we know Bob a little bit too. We ran um, Grid Life at Pikes Peak, and he was he was super cool. Yeah, Bob and. Tommy are awesome, man. I love love hanging out with those guys. We've known them for years, and they're, they're really great friends. So one of the things that I've heard about your car, and you and I have talked about a little, is um, your your car is a tube frame. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about what that means in the context of your car and what's different than how it was originally configured. So my car's chassis configuration started when... We wanted it to go beat Corvettes. Sure. So my car, I needed to move the engine back and I needed to get weight on the back of the car. So we started with basically a chassis table and set components on there where we wanted to have them. Okay. And then built around it. So obviously it was a lot easier to construct the chassis without the body. Sure. At that point. So we just took a bunch of measurements and I knew that I wanted a full roll cage because the plan was you're going thousand plus horsepower. Miles an hour. Yeah. I mean, it was going to be a thousand plus horsepower car and we were going to race it a lot and it just was dumb to not have a roll cage. Right. right. So when you're building a, a car and you're looking at it like, okay, well, I'm moving all the components I'm putting in a roll cage. If I'm putting in a roll cage, it's kind of dumb to not use it as the structure of the car. Sure. So we kind of designed the whole chassis around, okay, let's make the roll cage structural, get the components where we want them, and then we can have a clean sheet of paper on pickup points, and we'll just build it within the confines of the track width wheelbase of the Camaro itself. So usually when you have a car that's constructed in that way, People call them tube frame cars, especially because my car, you can remove the body okay. and go drive the car. Like Neat. The body <laughs> is not is no longer a stressed part of the car. The body is just basically the outer covering. Okay. It 
is steel roof and quarters, factory attached VIN number, all sure. of that type of thing. So it is still a car per se. It's not a a fiberglass replica of oh, a Camaro. Sure. And it's not, you know, like some people will say things like, oh, it's just like a pro mod. And that's not really true at all because pro mods are modified track widths and wheel bases and you know they move the wheels and the wheel openings and they do all kinds of weird things where my car is not any of those things the the wheel openings have not been relocated or wheelbase hasn't been changed um given that uh it it doesn't sound like you had um like an option for a kit or anything like that you're saying you just kind of did this from scratch yeah yeah i just basically kind of like back in the day when i decided to wire a grand national I was like, you know, I've never built a chassis from scratch. I'll uh, consult with some of my buddies that are engineers. Uh, I think I've got a good idea of what I want. And then I just built it. So uh, how many times do you think you got things wrong where, you know, a that lot. suspension pickup point wasn't wasn't quite right? Oh, or yeah. It's been not com- optimal. It's been completely cut apart and redone three times. Is that right? So this is the newest version. But what I think is great is a lot of people would have a concern with cutting apart a perfectly good car and trying to build everything from scratch not knowing if it was going to work or not but my theory has always been if i don't like it i still have saws and welders i could cut it back (laughs) apart and i could start over and redo it and it's a lot of work but the only way to really learn about it is to do it and you have to try and you have to be willing to accept the risk of failure and if it doesn't work you just start over make it better and then you learn. And I think that having that attitude has partly been the reason why we've attracted some of the people on our team that we have because sure. they like that we don't really have any constraints on the car. You know, we leave it pretty open, you know, other than the rules of whatever we're trying to race in that so particular year. You do uh, quite a bit of Optima, you've mm-hmm. done a grid life here and there. Uh, your customers, are they are they doing a bunch of series like that as well, just besides those? I have some customers that race uh, nationally, but most of them are more local guys currently. Okay. Uh, I've got a few more of them that are probably going to be starting to make the national circuits next year. Oh, cool. Um, I got a 69 Camaro that's just about done that he's really excited about going and racing it okay and we've got a 65 mustang that's super cool that the uh the customers really wanting to race that one as and well all of them make a gajillion horsepower um the the camaro has an lt5 that's currently stock but lt5s are pretty easy to juice up to a thousand if you want to okay um 900 really easy <laughs> and then we've got the Mustang is a twin turbo 434 Windsor that's about 900 horsepower. That's so, so wild. Yeah, we've kind of got a little bit of a thing around here that all the cars have a lot of power. I think that's a Texas thing. I don't yeah. know. There aren't many cars up north that make more than a thousand. It seems like here it's just like, yeah, it's any any other day. Yeah, like you don't have triple digits. Wait, <laughs> slow, man. Uh, or four. Yeah, you need more we digits. Do, yeah, we need more digits. Um. So what's what's next on the car? Well, I mean, what what's the next major issue that you want to tackle to make it better? Well, now that we're not going to be doing the Optima series with that car anymore, um, I'm going to be kind of looking at what we're going to do next and where the focus is going to be and kind of look at rules. But I want to really focus in on aero. Okay. Uh, and I think there's a lot of room to make the car faster with aero. Um, I'd like to also do a little bit more refinement on the, the chassis, but... 
my friend Scott Best, the guy that's been helping us with the chassis, said that we're really kind of in a good place because we've done so much development with the car without aero. Sure. That we know that we've got a balanced chassis. So now when we add aero to it, We'll have to we're yeah we're not gonna some more things yeah but he, it really will allow the car to be better faster because we won't be wondering if it's an aero induced problem or a chassis induced problem we gotcha. kind of know okay anything we add to it the change can be quantified as aero change sure and we can adjust the aero accordingly to and then we know how the car is going to handle on all different types of surfaces and tracks because we know we've got a chassis that's a known quantity so uh looking forward to that um we're probably going to be doing some stuff that won't necessarily require us to run on 200 Treadwear street tires. So we're going to develop um, a slick package, okay, you know, cool. possibly. Uh, we're also going to do maybe some half mile racing. Cause that I sounds just, cool. I think it would be neat because you don't see a lot of vintage cars doing that. Um, and if you do, they're not really as fast as that one is. Sure. So it'd be kind of cool to go race against some Lambos and Vipers and things like that and just see what those guys well, think of the old the, school you've got the 1000 horsepower setup down what about the 2000 horsepower setup yeah that car we can't go that high with the aluminum block okay so probably about the max that we'll do on this setups probably 12 to 1300 horsepower um, only yeah in the world of half mile racing it's probably pretty low but right. the rest of our setups reasonably efficient and you know on a I don't see where we wouldn't be able to get it close to 200 miles an hour in the half if That'd we do wild. it if we do it right. So, so you know, you've got the Sedev Trans. Is the is the diff strong enough to take that kind of work? I mean, obviously, um, when you raced with us in 16, you were you were darn fast uh, on the road course, and then you rolled over to the autocross and set fast time of the day there as well, which is yeah. super cool because very few cars can do that reliably. Yeah, that's kind of really where it been how the car's been built is that it's not it's not intended to be the fastest car at any one discipline. It's just meant to be very fast at all of them. Sure. So in the Optima racing that we do, you have to do three different racing disciplines. You have to do autocross, speed stop, and road course. And if you try and have the car where you need to do radical adjustments, you just don't have time. Sure. So our car we actually don't do any configuration changes whatsoever between the three different races so i know that um some of the uh, standalone ecu options have really sophisticated traction control that you can configure mm. did your car have that set up to run the speed stop or no yes my car has a ms3 pro that uses wheelbase wheel speed based traction control okay and we leave that on all the time. Okay. Uh, we also have the ability to do dome control, boost control, which basically allows us to tailor the boost anywhere from 5 to 20 pounds. Uh, and we can adjust it per gear as well. Awesome. So I have a different boost map for each gear. So we've actually got it where the car's pretty tame in each gear and doesn't just completely annihilate the tires. And then... The traction control just picks up any little so, wheel spin. Uh, at least in, in my world, in the time attack world, um, a lot of drivers are running cars that started out as, as things that they drove every day. Mm -hmm. And more often than not, it was uh, small turbo four-cylinder stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, that 
as as you progress in power, that really presents a lot of challenges with just mechanical integrity of all kinds of things, right? So if you can get the motor to be strong enough, then you're also worrying about gear sets that are strong enough just because they're they're compact packages, they're light-ish, and they've got to fit in a really small space. Um, with your setup, I mean, are you are you running into transmission uh, challenges that you want to overcome or diff challenges that you want to overcome as well as engine stuff? You know, the only problems we've had that have been somewhat consistent have been uh, CV joints. Okay. Um, if the car kind of loads and unloads while it's accelerating, it can break. Usually the inside left CV joint is the one that seems to break on it. But um, other than CV joints, and we did break a drive shaft once, the car's been pretty reliable as far as drivetrain goes. Was that just because of something like wheel hop or something like that? Yeah, the drive shaft was when we started doing flat shifts with the sequential. <laughs> and I think the quality of the shaft that was in there, because mine runs a shortened shaft, the weld was just not the best looking weld I've ever seen. And it just shredded the weld and broke the shaft. But we've got a, a little bit better shaft in there now, and it hasn't been a problem so far. And we've actually taken it out just to look at it and make sure you know that it's not starting to have any stress fracturing or anything and it, it looks like everything's staying staying pretty good you know i don't i know i don't want to go too crazy with the power because obviously there's still corvette parts in the sure, drivetrain sure. corvettes are not designed to have thousand horsepower thousand foot pounds of torque it's a lot and it's a lot you know and at some point stuff is going to break sure. and as we add more grip that's going to apply more torque to all the driveline parts. So, you know, we have a touch of concern there. and uh, But we'll just keep an eye on it and figure out what the magic number is. But That's it's rad. certainly not as not as touchy as some of the cars. You know, like I've got a bunch of friends with Evos, and it seems like those cars can be quite finicky. A bit, yeah. I had one of those myself. Yeah. Now now I just drive cheap Hondas. Yeah, they're, they're fast, but they're a little bit fragile yeah, especially, I mean, uh, those guys at RS Motors had done an extraordinary job figuring out what you could get out of um, kind of a simple setup. Mm. And as Andy has gone up and up in power, I mean, cars, four-cylinder cars making 200 horsepower per liter or, yeah-ish, is, no, 300 horsepower per liter, whatever. If you're running above like 600, you run into challenges, right? It's just like cars too small to make that much power reliably and yeah. you, you just have to start balancing the chassis to do that kind of stuff and it's it's just it, the whole car is different with that much power yeah well and the transmission gears are really small yep. in those cars and the rear diff is tiny yep and the you so know, if the, you're you know johnny 60 foot you're you're running into trouble because they just break yeah well and it's i mean it's a great platform it's just it was never intended to be pushed that far and the parts are just they're small. Like if you look at the motors, everything in them is just yep. tiny. And then you go putting 30, 40 pounds of boost on the things. And yep. That you get crazy cylinder pressure numbers. And So um, you do Optima and you do some time attack, which means that you're a, a solid autocrosser. But you've, have you ever competed at like an SCCA Nationals in Nebraska? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We went up there and competed at, in the CAM the okay. first ever cab invitational we went up there and we won the cam uh t what's t 
traditional or it's, I think cam T is that. Yeah. It's cam C is contemporary. T is traditional and S is sports. And that's okay. for like the Corvettes and stuff. So we won the first ever cam T SCCA. Nationals, that's awesome. So, um, so you, you kind of get around and you do a whole bunch of different disciplines. Do you have any wheel to wheel experience? No, I have not run wheel to wheel ever. It's something that some of my friends are really wanting to get into and they they want to do like a team and get me into it. And it, I think it would be fun. The tricky part's just time. Sure. And next year it's looking like we're going to be running so many events and multiple cars. And so like I just don't know if I'll get time to do that. I mean, it, I think it would be fun because I know in like go-karts and things like that, I really enjoy the racecraft sure. aspect, you know, where time attack is pretty much just, get around there absolutely as fast as you can and it's like qualifying all the time sure but racecraft trying to set people up and make passes and things like that's really a lot of fun and i think that would be a cool thing to do time attack is to me is interesting for a number of reasons because um you really as a driver you're challenging yourself a lot to kind of get over the hump of just being afraid because if you're in a really fast car Mm. you are probably at or close to your limit as a driver and also possibly the limit of the car. And it makes me appreciate those guys that drive in formula one because, um, this year at Coda life motorsports set, uh, you know, a production based car record there of two minutes and seven seconds in their very fast, uh, R 35 GTR. Oh, cool. Uh, which is, which is booking. Um, but Formula One cars this year were running a minute thirty ones, I think, in qualifying pace, and so yeah. you know you start to do that difference. And thinking about thirty six seconds faster than the fastest time attack car in the country, that's fast. And so yeah. to those guys having the confidence to go that quick is, I think, pretty neat. Yeah, it's kind of imagine you just have to reprogram your brain to understand what's okay and what's not because you know everything in in our mind would say you cannot turn in at this speed it's not going to work but in their mind they're like oh we're fine yeah it's fine just, just get, tur- on, just get turn over the it, wheel. do it come on um, go. you talked a minute about your next project mm-hmm. are you interested in talking about it on the show i'm not i, I could talk about it a little bit it's definitely something we're going to be racing next year it's just a question of if we're going to be able to race it in the Optima series or not, I got to get a talk to the owner okay, and see if we can do a little, it would take a little bit of a reconfiguration to get it legal for their rules. Okay. But it's a, uh, it's a 1940 Willys coupe and no, that's not a Jeep. It's a two door coupe. A lot of people, when I tell people it's a Willys, they all immediately think, think it's, it's a Jeep, Jeep and it's not, uh, it's kind of like the car that they used to have as a, the old gasser dragster back in the day. Um, so it's a 40 Willys that has a three, five EcoBoost in it that was built by Livernoy that's putting out 860 horse at the wheels. And we mated that to an R35 GTR transaxle. And as far as I know, it's the only car on the planet running and driving with an R35 transaxle that doesn't have an R35 engine in it. (laughs) So it took... And just boatloads of time and development to make the thing work. It was one of those projects that was kind of like everything else we do. Where, oh yeah, we could do that. We'll figure it out. 
And that I've never been so close to the <laughs> verge of thinking I was going to fail in my life. No kidding. Like that was hard because well, we had to hack CAN networks and we had to... And, I mean, the R35 is arguably one of the more technologically advanced cars on the planet. Sure. And we reverse engineered it. And we had engineers from Nissan that laughed at us and said we'd never make it work. And we did. Cool. So it's cool that we made it work. And I really want to get the car out and do as much as we can with it next year because it's going to be such a cool car. I mean, it probably will probably weigh somewhere in the maybe 2,500 pounds range is what I'm hoping for. And then 860 horsepower and all-wheel drive. So Good it, luck keeping tires on it. Yeah. It, even even at that power level, all-wheel it, drive might not be enough. Yeah. Well, and the funny part is it's got 335 squared. So it's got a lot awesome. of, it's got a lot of tire. That's awesome. So it's going to be pretty darn quick when we get it all dialed in and I'm really looking forward to having that thing out. I think it'll, I think a lot of people will get a kick out of it. You know, we really wanted to build a car that could cross generations, you know, where hot rodders would dig it. The younger crowd will dig it. Import guys, domestic guys. I mean, that car's got a little bit of something for everybody. Yeah, that's it's, super cool. Yeah, it's really not a, it's kind of a, wall buster you know that there it, it is got something for everyone yeah that's that's awesome well um i don't know we're 37 minutes in that's probably about a show uh where can people find more about what you do and your setups and and find you as a as a potential customer yeah you could find us uh social media is the most current uh, we're on Facebook and Instagram at Dusold Designs. And then we also have a website, DusoldDesigns.com. And you can always call us at the shop at 972-221-1455. We'd be happy to talk to you. Thanks a lot, Mike. We appreciate your time today. All right. Thanks, Sam. Slip Angle was created by Austin Cabot and Adam Jubay, co-hosted by Derek Yarbrough and production by Abram Schmucker, who mixes all of our terrible audio. If you like the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes and come and find us in the pits at a grid live to say hello. Hello.